You know, one of our favorite Christmas carols is called O Holy Night. And in that carol, it has this line, and it says, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And if you go back over 2,000 years to that time when Jesus was born, you will see that the world was weary at that time. If you even go back to 1847 when the song A Weary or Holy Night was recorded, the world was weary at that time as well. And we know that the world is weary today. We feel it every day. But there also remains a thrill of hope. You know, I shared before that if uh, and when people ask me, say, Bruce, so how are you doing? There's oftentimes uh, many different stories I could tell. And sometimes I say, well, you know, I could tell you five different stories, every one of them completely different, but also every one of them totally true. And sometimes I can experience all those realities in the scope of one day. And that has never been more true than in this year 2020. And I know that you can relate to that. Uh, every one of us has so many things that are going on in the background, so many things that are, we have backstories to our backstories. And then there's another story that's going on kind of behind the scenes, behind that as well. And sometimes the responses that we see in people, or even the responses that we see in ourselves that emerge from something that's maybe a small deal, it is a little out of character, maybe it's a little bit over the top, maybe it's something that's disproportionate to the issue at hand. And it's because it, it really depends on which of the many stories is kind of rising to the emotional surface at the time. I remember many years ago when our youngest daughter, Courtney, she was playing soccer, and uh, she was about 10 years old. And her coach that one year was a fellow who uh, typically coached elite male athletes in a different sport, but this year he had taken a year off, and so his daughter was 10, and uh, he wanted to coach her in soccer, and so that was Courtney's coach as well. And one day, I remember Lisa and I were sitting there, and we were uh, enjoying the game, sitting, doing what parents do. We were doing our responsibility of sitting in our lawn chairs, eating sunflower seeds, and cheering them on. And uh, the coach was walking along the sidelines uh, beside us, or in front of us, and the play was in front of our net, and there was a whole bunch of players gathered around, as typically happens, especially in 10-year-old soccer. And they were bumping into each other, and then one girl kind of crumpled into the ground. She got knocked over or something, and she was part of our team. And we'll call her Sarah. I don't know what her name was, but Sarah was a little bit of a drama queen. And um, so this coach, one of the things that we loved about him was that he sometimes expressed a little bit of tough love, and he encouraged the girls, but he pushed them a little bit as well. And so he yells at her, and he says, hey, Sarah, come on, get up. You're fine. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. Just get back into the play. And I remember the, the play goes down to the other end of the field, and then Sarah slowly gets up, and, and Lisa and I are watching, and she's not crying, and she's not hurt, and all of a sudden we notice that she seems angry. And she turns towards the sidelines, and she looks straight at the coach who's standing kind of right in front of us, and she stomps her feet, and she, her whole body is shaking. And she says, I am not fine. Yeah, can you relate to that? I think you can. The coach, he kind of turns to us and he just sort of has this look on his face like, wow. And then he just kind of goes on up the field. I'm sure there have been times in this year for you where you've wanted to shout at the world or to shout at somebody that you are not fine. People are weary. The world is weary in, in 2020. Our lives have been bumped in more ways than we can describe. And Sometimes the last thing that you need in those moments is to have somebody tell you that, you know what, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you're going to be okay, uh, when that's not the emotional story that maybe you're living in that moment. You know, and so you need opportunities to let it out. Maybe you need to let that out today, and maybe if it's helpful, like Sarah, you just need a moment to kind of shout to the world that you are not fine, and 
I just want to give you that moment for a second. Maybe you just yell it at your screen or you just say it to somebody who's, you know, there with you. And you just, you know, tell them that you are not fine. You can yell as loud as you want. Okay, go ahead. I'll wait. Does that feel better? You know, when we go back to the original Christmas story, there were many things that were not fine. Jesus entered a very weary world at that time as well. And, and Matthew's account in the Gospel of Matthew that he talks about the Jesus story and the birth of Jesus, it seems to reveal that he had a keen interest in backstories as well. And what's interesting about the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they all give a unique perspective, a, a unique window into the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And they all describe different aspects and they tell different components of the story. And sometimes we wonder, well, why all those different uh, viewpoints, those different vantage points. Why do we need four Gospels? Why not just sort of co combine them all together in one comprehensive package so that there's no discrepancies between them and it just kind of tells the whole thing? But the reality is, is that we know that each of those four writers had different perspectives. They, they had different vantage points of the life of Jesus, and they also had different priorities of things that they wanted to emphasize. You know, for instance, only two of them uh, tell of the birth, birth of Jesus. Mark, for instance, he, he doesn't even go there. He just goes straight to John the Baptist and starts with Jesus as an adult in his ministry. The Gospel of John, uh, the writer John, he, he describes Jesus' uh, ministry at a really high level. And he starts with this great theology of who Jesus is at the beginning of his Gospel. And so only Matthew and Luke are the two that actually give the account of Jesus' birth. And yet even those two are actually quite different. The Luke has... Uh, things that we like to see on Christmas cards. It has many of the components that uh, we're quite familiar with. The manger scenes, baby Jesus in, a, in swaddling clothes. We have the shepherds and the angels. The Matthew account, not so much. It, it's got the wise men, yes, but other than that, he tells some very different perspectives of the story. Matthew, he shares the shady lineage of Jesus' family of origin. He talks about the young Joseph who tries to follow the law by quietly breaking off the engagement to this pregnant, unwed bride-to-be. Also, this young couple, the same young couple who ends up fleeing to Egypt because their lives are in danger. He tells the story of the underhanded and brutal power grab of Herod, this puppet political leader trying to hang on to power at all costs. And one of the ways he does that is the resulting slaughtering of all the boys who are two years old and younger in that whole region in an awful attempt to try to hold on to power. Can you imagine the grieving mothers at that time? Grieving and just going through what they had just witnessed and experienced in the trauma of their lives and losing their children just because that happened to coincide with the incarnation of Christ. But there they all, they're, these are the stories that don't make the Christmas cards, but they're there in the Matthew account. He seemed intrigued by the messy stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff, the backstories. And yet, the story is about this Jesus who came into this world to overwhelm and to conquer this very evil and this very pain that is often pushed aside in our feel-good Christmas stories. So why start with that long genealogy? That family tree of Jesus. Why did this matter to him? It's almost like the very first Ancestry.ca website and pulling up Jesus, which included actually four women that were part of that genealogy. He mentioned uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, 
Bathsheba, all four of them, first of all women, which was unusual that they would be included. Then they were not Jews, but they were actually Gentiles. And not only that, but they each had some component of sexual scandal as part of their story. I mean, first of all, there was Tamar. She acted like a prostitute to become pregnant by her father-in-law. Then there was Rahab, and she was a prostitute. Then there was Ruth, who approached a man to sleep with him. And then there was Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. And even though that they seem to be women of questionable conduct, the story of God seems to go to great lengths to absolve them of any wrongdoing, mainly because of their willingness to follow God and respond to God and their character. And also partly because of the questionable conduct of the men who are part of their stories as well. But even, forget about the women, what about Manasseh? I mean, Manasseh's in Jesus' lineage. He's in his family tree. What's he doing on the list? I mean, here is Jesus' great, 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 add a whole bunch more great grandfather. And, I mean, at least in terms of his human lineage. And, and he was likely the most horrific king of Judah that they ever saw. At least that's how it's recorded in the Old Testament. He did evil in the Lord's sight. He built pagan shrines to false gods. He even sacrificed his own son in the fire. It says in 2 Kings that he murdered so many innocent people until all of Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. Not so different from Herod. And yet there it is. There's his name. Matthew 1 verse 10. Part of Jesus' great family lineage. Yeah, Matthew, he seemed intrigued by this backstory of this royal family of Jesus, filled with all kinds of questionable characters. It's like watching the crown. You know, Matthew doesn't offer a whole sanitized account of Jesus' pedigree and family lineage. He he seems to want to show that Jesus has all kinds of blood coursing through his veins and that the roots of his life kind of go down into the dirt of humanity. And yes, Jesus was born to be king, but He also makes it clear that this was God's doing. This had nothing to do with political power. This had nothing to do with human decision or having the right family tree. Jesus didn't just drop out of heaven. He didn't just become one of us. He is one of us. All of us. The good, the bad, the ugly, just like his birth record shows. Maybe Matthew's intrigue is because this kingdom was to include all kinds of people. You see, Jesus was not just born for the people of Israel. He was born for the entire weary world. And so in Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23, he says this, All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And I mentioned in John's gospel, he begins in a very different way, and he starts his chapter talking about this high theology of who Jesus is, and he summarizes the Jesus story in this way. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word, word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you see, this is the incredible good news of this story, is that Jesus came for everyone. But not everyone receives him, not everyone will like this, not everyone will embrace Jesus, especially the powerful 
especially the insiders, those who think that they've been appointed to rule the world. Those are the ones even today who tend to reject the king because it's a very different kind of kingdom, one that they wouldn't even recognize. Or maybe it's those who struggle with their own backstory of their own family tree and the mess of their family. Or maybe it's just that they feel that they're too messy. Or maybe it's those who are struggling to believe that God is good when there's so much pain in the world and so much pain in their own lives. You know, there's, there's something very inviting and familiar and maybe even comforting when we see how Jesus was born, that there were messy families, outsiders bearing gifts, politicians trying to hold on to power, grieving mothers in Bethlehem screaming, where is God in all this pain? You know, little did those wise men realize what was set in motion that night as they entered into Herod's house and they asked this seemingly innocent question and just said, you know, where is this one who's been born the king of the Jews? They were walking into a massive controversy. I mean, this was about kingdoms colliding. It was about the reign of God versus the rule of men. When that happens, the world gets weary. You know, the kingdom of heaven was invading the kingdoms of earth in the most unlikely of ways. So quiet, so humble, so opposite of the power grabs of this world, and this was a very different kind of kingdom. And you know, for the ancient prophets, as we read about in the Old Testament, the litmus test for them of the kingdom of God was often things like justice, things like caring for the lowest, caring for the most helpless. And when the defenseless and the helpless and the widows and the orphans were cared for, then God was seen to be among his people. And so to obey was better than sacrifice. Seeking justice wins out over burnt offerings. And so we return back to the lyrics of O Holy Night. And you know, they help us to see this. They help us to see how truly we are to rejoice as a weary world. That we rejoice by loving God, by loving others, just as God loved us. This is how we rejoice. That even though the world lay mired in sin and error, full of oppression and pain that the souls of the people were pining, were longing for a Savior. And then there was the thrill of hope, even in the weariness. What a night divine that Christ was born. Truly this Christ child, through his life and eventual death, taught us to love one another in sacrificial ways. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. And how he breaks the chains of the slaves who are actually our brothers, And in his name, all oppression will cease. You know, the weariness of the world so long ago is a weariness that we continue to identify with today. But it's one where the kingdom of God will continue to break in with a different kind of power, an unmistakable peace, and a relentless hope. And his name is Jesus. And just as Matthew shows us, the reality of a broken and weary world continues throughout all the ages right up to today where families are messy, where political leaders try to hold on to power at all costs, where people are displaced from their homes and sent into exile as refugees. There is so much pain of suffering and death, whether it's the murdered children or the oppression of the vulnerable and the marginalized. It's a backstory that every generation can identify with. And it's a backstory that Matthew seems to want us to know and to understand, not just for his day, but for our day as well. Yet into that breaks the love of God through the Prince of Peace, Jesus. We are called to rejoice, to embrace, and to live with the thrill of hope and the gospel of peace. 
regardless of what the world throws at you.